0: Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording
1: of an IFG Live event. Well, hello and welcome to this IFG Live event, State Aid, a deal breaker for the UK. I'm Thomas Pope, a senior economist at the Institute and a co-author of our recent report, Beyond State Aids, which looked at the UK's options for subsidy control beyond the end of this year. State Aid is the EU subsidy control system that restricts what subsidies member states can provide to businesses. It isn't an outright ban on subsidies, and while the UK has only made limited use of subsidies within the rules over the last couple of decades, other member states, such as Germany, have made much more use of them. Broadly, the state aid system is there to prevent harmful subsidies that favor a business or a group of businesses over others in a way that distorts trade and competition. So, economy-wide tax breaks are not generally considered state aid, but a grant or a preferential loan to a single business is. The UK has followed and indeed supported state aid rules as a member states, but as it leaves the single market at the end of this year, state aid has emerged as a key stumbling block to a UK-EU trade deal. The EU wants the UK to commit to a robust regime like state aid, and in its negotiating mandate earlier this year, proposed that the UK should continue to follow EU rules. The UK, on the other hand, has so far said that it would not accept any binding restrictions on subsidies in the trade agreements, citing other trade agreements that EU has struck, for example, with Canada. A few weeks ago, the government announced that it didn't intend to replace state aid rules at the end of this year, and instead will fall back onto the WTO system. It is also legislating in the Internal Market Bill to provide ministers with power to override Article 10 of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which covers its state aid provisions. But just yesterday, both David Frost and Michael Gove appeared more hopeful. I'm sure we will get onto the significance of what they said on state aids later on today. So why is it that state aid is such a big problem in these negotiations? Why does the government not want to commit to a subsidy control regime? What exactly does that bit of the NI protocol mean? Is a compromise possible? And what might it look like? Well, I'm very fortunate today to be joined by an expert panel to discuss these questions. George Peretz QC is a barrister at Moncton Chambers, has long been an expert in state aid and will I'm sure be familiar to many of you. He's a member of the UK State Aid Law Association and was recently a signatory on a letter from experts offering to help the government design its own regime. Ali Reneson is Head of EU and Trade Policy at the Institute of Directors and has been a prominent commentator on UK EU negotiations over the past few years. She's also got into the detail on state aid helping to change the undertaking in difficulty test under the EU's coronavirus temporary framework earlier this year. So we're delighted that she's on the panel today to provide her insights. And last, but certainly not least, I'm joined by James Weber a partner at the law firm Shearman & Sterling, and a state aid lawyer who has written a number of influential papers on the topic already this year, describing a regime based on WTO principles that would meet the legitimate aspects of the EU's demands for UK subsidy control while protecting both EU and UK independence. He has also prepared a draft subsidy chapter for the EU UK FTA, reflecting his ideas, uh, which has been published by the UK State Aid Law Association, and also adopted by the pro-Brexit think-tank, Select Centre for Brexit Policy. Before I go on, let me encourage you all in the audience to please submit your questions through the Q&A function. I'm planning to leave plenty of time to get to those after we cover some grounds with the panel first. So let's get going. And George, if I can come to you first, why is it that state aid is such a big issue for both sides in these negotiations?
2: Well, I think they're helpful to look at the, each side separately. Um, and on the EU side, I think the position is uh, it, it's fairly straightforward and, and really readily understood um, and can be put in quite stark and simple terms. The EU is concerned that if there is a free trade agreement with the UK and the UK has no uh, form of subsidy control regime, the UK will be in a position to offer companies, for example, the um, uh, the, the opportunity to, to locate uh, in Europe and in a territory with pretty free access, or tariff-free access, at any rate, to the EU, while being able to offer very large bangs, to put it crudely, to those companies uh, of a form that EU member states wouldn't be able to offer because they will remain constrained by EU state rules, which will essentially um, prevent them from offering similar bungs because, uh, for example, I mean, if Frankfurt offers a bung to a bank to locate in Frankfurt, that will contribute in EU state aid rules because it will, uh, for example, dissuade that bank from locating in Paris. So there's a fundamental asymmetry in the position of the UK and the EU in such an arrangement, and the EU is just not prepared to live with that. And I think politically, um, we we have to understand that that's just not an acceptable political sell uh, by eu politicians to their own voters should be it, that's why i think it's this is a um, sometimes put as an existential concern by the eu it's a fundamental issue which cannot be um you know sort of wished away on the uk side the um it, it's a bit more difficult to work out what the rationale behind the position is given in particular uh, that the uk has, has a history of offering much less in the way of State aid than most other member states do. It's it's lived fairly comfortably within the state aid regime. Very little, very few cases where the UK has uh, run into trouble for giving unlawful aid. Most things that governments have wanted to do have ended up being cleared by the European Commission, and they fall within the state aid regime. Um, State aid regime in some respects be quite helpful to the Treasury in being in giving it a reason for resisting. Um, demands to sort of rescue failing industries and, and that's been quite helpful. Um, there's no articulated objection to accepting a form of subsidy control beyond fairly abstract concerns about uh, sovereignty. The objection that there would have been to the original EU, EU proposals that the UK couldn't live with a situation with a with regime dominated by the European Court of Justice. As I think largely fallen away because the EU has made it clear it is prepared to move from that somewhat maximalist original position. Um, one gets stories in the newspapers about the, the, the UK is concerned that such and such uh, a proposal, you know, funding tech companies, certain types of tax break would not be possible if there were a subsidy control regime but none of that is articulated or, and, or developed and most of us who have worked in this area look at these Uh, these objections and say to ourselves, well, you know, a well-designed system of subsidy which um, genuinely meets a market failure, which um, uh, doesn't create enormous and unacceptable distortions of competition and serves a clearly justified public purpose, will in the end get through a well-developed subsidy regime. So what exactly is the problem here? Uh, And one's left somewhat concerned that the real problem is that there are those within government who are just concerned by any um, constraint or scrutiny of decisions in this area, that they find any constraint or scrutiny unacceptable. Um, There have been also some concerns about the impact of state aid on tax policy. Those may have been somewhat assuaged by the recent Apple decision, but it always has been true that um, state aid uh, rules have an impact on tax. The same can be said of WTO subsidy rules as well, actually, that they can affect tax policy. So I think that's a, if I, that's a sort of summary of the of the position. And um, uh, sort of broadly, it's very easy to understand why it's a big issue for the EU. It's much less easy to understand why it's such an enormous issue for the, for the UK.
1: That's a really helpful summary. Thank you, George. Ali, if I can come to you next. George mentions that you know, this is a really big issue for the EU, but the UK has pointed to other trade agreements that um, the EU has signed and said that the subsidy provisions there were much less than what they demanded from a UK-EU deal. Does the UK have a point here that they're being treated quite differently from those other partners?
0: I mean, I think in this regard, it depends on your starting point of the parameters of of what you how you view the negotiations, because if you start from the premise um, uh, that there is a legitimate point in the arguments that the commission um, we assume they're making them uh, in the negotiations because they, Michelle Barnier has made these public references to the degree of sort of basically proximity to a market and sort of pre-existing integration with a market. I mean, if, if you think if you state that as a legitimate starting point, which is, is very much, I think, in contention to a certain degree. Um, then you can understand sort of the EU's arguments for sort of wanting to go sort of this and, 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 you know, further forwards. I think it would be actually more interesting to look at, um, even though there is, you know, there is a focus on free trade agreements here and sort of standard offerings. Well, if you're going to have something that's based on the WTO's SCM agreement on sort of subsidies, subsidies and countervailing measures then uh, you are sort of moving towards more sort of standard um, uh, areas. I do think that there is a general lack of understanding that um, uh, when it comes to competition, having a level playing field um, or as, lo- as close to level playing field as possible is a, a big focus of, of most trading partners in negotiations. It's just the extent of it. Um, and so if you were, to, I think it would be more interesting to look at where the EU uh, is trying or has tried to go with, for example, Switzerland in this area because there's not an institutional framework. Um, and I think George probably, uh, amongst others, speak to the sort of specific details of that. But it's, it's it's a much more, I think, lax regime, for example. I don't know if the government necessarily has precedents in mind. And this is where the question becomes, you know, is it more focused on, uh, as was sort of intimated earlier, this is just about making sure that we don't sign up to any binding standards um, uh, with the EU in this space. Or is it about actually what we want to do with those freedoms? And I think you have to answer that question first to know well what 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 is considered acceptable by the government. Um, there has been some reference, I think, and you know it's it's hard to look at the detail. There's really in most FTAs. Yes, you can argue that um, there is a direct impact of uh, subsidy rules and how they interconnect with sort of tax arrangements. There isn't that much. Um, for lack of a better uh, phrase, case law, I think on this, um, I don't like to use the word law, but in terms of what the WTO sort of dispute panels have um, have engaged on, I don't think there's that much evidence of it. Um, having said that, particularly in uh, a single market based on sort of the EU's type of legal order, um, it's you know enforcement is very important and I think that you know perhaps if the eu hadn't come out with its maximalist position um, the government would have been minded to uh, you know never say never but maybe it would have been more minded to come forward with some sort of details of its own regime I do think it's worth remembering though um, that in the Conservative Party manifesto you know if you, if we talk about whether there was any sort of hinting of this to come um, it explicitly linked um, and this may have given the eu pause for thought which until this point you would have never expected the Conservative Party administration to make um, subsidy control one of the do or die issues in negotiations over sensible trade continuity or closure as possible. Um, but we do have to remember that there was a, a point in the Conservative Party's manifesto going into the election last year that talked about explicitly moving away from the EU state aid regime um, to create, uh, we never really saw that much detail around it, but I think the wording was um, a sort of rule for public bodies around by British, although they seem to link that more with sort of agriculture than anything else. And we do know that sort of public procurement has been a big focus for um, some of the government's advisors to date. But as George says, I think understanding exactly what it wants or what it doesn't want out of the regime makes it difficult to know whether what its what its approach in the negotiations is justified or not. Um, uh, without wishing to preempt the question too much, I think you know, uh, speaking to a lot of businesses, yes, um, you know, for the EU, for for much of the EU, actually, this is a do or die issue in terms of the level playing field. It's interesting speaking to some business organizations in other countries, you know, and you ask them about what their approach to the business organizations in those countries and the member states approach to the negotiations are. And in some of the bigger member states, you've got people who are worried about trade continuity, but there is a big block. We're also worried, particularly in I think some of the steel um, industries, making sure that there is that level playing field. The last thing I would say on that is, and and without seeing the detail of the the negotiations or a text, although we've seen some discussion about principles that came out, I think, yesterday um, uh, from David Frost's uh, evidence to the Committee on the Future of the Relationship with the EU, that there are some, you know, that the the, the government's not trying to sort of cast it off wholesale, that we think and hope that they do want to move towards a more UK-tailored subsidy regime and state aid regime. The question is about enforcement. And the last thing I would say on that is um, George mentioned a reference to tax. I think that that is that is something that probably, even though you had the um, uh, outcome in the case of Apple versus the Commission on this that was more favorable to less certainly less favorable to the Commission, there is that concern about you know uh, that was why certainly the government didn't want to remain in lockstep with the rules was the extent to which tax policy would continue to increase. Actually, um, very often you hear some references to. Uh, uh, Margaret Vestager's um, uh, competition brief, she's done a lot of work also around tax avoidance. And so, is that starting to move into normative values? Um, so, I think that would probably underscore why there would be actual um, genuine commercial um, and, and government nervousness. But it's really a case of not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I think there's been some considerable um, surprise that this was one of the issues that we were willing to potentially risk a, a no deal outcome over.
1: Thanks very much, Sally That's really interesting. Um, James, can I come to you next? So, clearly, this has been an area where the government um, has wanted to stick its flag in the ground, at least to some extent. Mm -hmm. Um, The two sides are still quite far apart. Is a landing zone possible? Um, And I know you've outlined one in some detail. Could you give us the broad strokes of that? Sure. Um, And perhaps um, mention whether you think what David Frost was talking about yesterday um, is consistent with what, what you've proposed?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think a landing zone definitely is possible. Um, You know, I'm a little bit more um, critical of the EU's position. I I think the um, I'm not sure I fully buy the idea that the the EU's motivation for attracting um, for imposing state aid control on the UK uh, is appropriate or justifiable. Um, you know, most FTAs don't, including all the ones that the EU has signed thus far, and the one that they were proposing with the US, which have got similar trade volumes as the as we've got with the UK, uh, did not have uh, you know subsidy chapters which are anything like um, what they proposed initially with the UK. And I also think that the EU starting position was a bit more than maximalist. I mean, I would say the EU starting position was, you know, um, completely outrageous and probably a breach of the withdrawal agreement because it was a, you know, an attempt to try and impose EU law in the UK, which was, you know, directly contrary to to a sovereign to sovereign trade arrangement. So so I think the EU's position, they started so far out um, that they are going to have to move an enormous distance, I think. Um, and so, what is the? Uh, but the FTA is very strongly in, Euro- in the European Union's interest. It's a good, largely a goods FTA. We don't have um, significant financial services chapters. We don't believe uh, we don't have uh, much in the way of, um, uh, y- y- you know, uh, other collateral issues the UK is asking for. So, so it is strong in the EU's interests. And I don't think, I can't really see them um, abandoning an agreement because of state aid and fish um which are the last two points we're led to believe so what does the compromise really look like well um you know i I obviously hope that the regime that the compromise looks a little bit like the one i've written up (laughs) unsurprisingly so uh, and and what that what that would imply is you know two sort of separate systems the uk system and, and the eu the existing eu system And I think um, we're best served by having standing, so each side being able to participate in the domestic system of the other. And uh, that allows real remedies and and legal certainty around subsidy, subsidy control. And I think the third sort of element, so separate systems, standing in each other's systems, the third element would then be the trigger for engaging the provisions of the subsidy chapter of the FTA would have to be something that actually affects trading competition between the two of us. And, and that is a massive shift for the European Union, which um, whose state aid rules, at least at the level of is it a subsidy, is it state aid or not, don't really have any regard to, to effects. Um, and so it creates a fresh problem, a fresh thought problem, which is, well, how, how would you design this effects or proportionality test? Um, and I, I think you can do it in three three entirely obvious categories, which you've got th- things that definitely do, things that definitely don't, and then things that would need to be assessed and measured uh, in, in the middle. Uh, and that assessment and measurement would have to happen in within the domestic systems of each of each party. And then I think the last sort of point within the domestic regimes would be well even if you've got an effect is it justifiable by reference to the public policy goals subsidies seeking to achieve you typically have this problem where a subsidy would generate an anti-competitive effect but the the policy goal pursued by it uh, supersedes or is considered to be more important i mean covid of course is an extreme example of that but very large amounts of state aid are paid because they achieve a regional development goal, or they're an environmental goal, or such like. So I think you've got to have some sort of some sort of balancing, so to say, at the end. And then I think you reach the end of the domestic pro systems, and you can have appeals from them, etc. But but the end of the administrative part of the system. And then if either side is dissatisfied with the outcome it has achieved in the other side system, uh, really the only the only real approach you can have is, is some form of retaliatory, retaliatory tariff right structure. Um, because you can't have a DRM, as it's called, you know, a dispute settlement resolution mechanic that supersedes the domestic decision-making processes because the EU is not prepared to accept that because it, it would uh, essentially act as an additional superior layer to the ecj which is not prepared to, to tolerate the uk is not offered that either so that the, the structure would have to be retaliation and then a drm system which we could make work better than scm of course the monetaryary agreement um, which looks at whether tariffs are justified and whether they're proportionate um, and that's um that that's it that that to me is a landing zone that i think would would be a massive advance on any trade agreement that EU has ever signed before, but would allow both systems to remain independent, uh, would not have um, some of the problems that the state aid current state aid system has. And and I think listening to David Frost yesterday, you know, a lot of those themes were coming through. I mean the ideas are not he wasn't developing them in his evidence to the committee, but he talked about an administrative system that looked at proportionality, looked at public policy, whether it can be justified by public policy, um, that's transparent, that generates an incentive effect, right? which would be one of my sort of blacklisted things. You can't give aid if it's not going to achieve anything. So I I think and I hope the UK is moving towards a system like like the one I've described, and that, that would be a very an excellent outcome for
1: the UK and the EU. Great, thank you very much for that, James. That was a really uh, comprehensive explanation. George, can I just come to you and get uh, get your views on that? I know you you've read um, James's chapter, and um, do you think that is um, the basis of could be the basis of a compromise?
2: I don't think any of us are ab- absolutely confident about what the EU is prepared to accept or not to accept. But it it seems to me that in principle. Uh, I, if the UK can develop a robust system um, of subsidy control, that ought to meet the, the fundamental political problem that identified you know, right at the outset of, of, this, the, of this session. Um, it gives EU politicians something to say to voters, their own domestic industries, who are concerned by an asymmetry. So say there isn't an asymmetry because the UK will deal with um subsidies of this kind under its own regime and if for some reason it it doesn't there are things that we can uh, then then do i mean i think a, a couple of, of of sort of comments uh, I, I i would add i mean I've first just a minor point on dispute resolution uh, mechanism um, i mean i agree there are certainly problems with that, I think one well, probably is some form of retaliation regime. It's got, of course, to be able to deal with services as well. So it may, tariffs, of course, don't help you much with services. Um, so the retaliation may need to take other forms than tariffs. It might be um, a sort of reduction of um, uh, you know, the services privileges of one sort or another, depending on what's, what, if anything, is negotiated, which may not, of course, be that much in terms of services. Um, what I think is also key to the EU, and, and, and was I think, although I haven't actually heard what David Frost has to say, I'm relying on second-hand reports. I haven't had time. Um, I think one thing I, I'm missing from David Frost's um, remarks, which I think is is from an EU perspective critical, is enforcement and independent, some form of independent regulator. I mean, I think the EU thinks about these things in legal terms. Um, that's, if you like, a sort of deformation professionnelle of the EU. But it does think like that. And I just I think it's going to be very hard for it to accept that the regime that is not enforceable, so that third parties can't go to court and force government to comply with it, um, is, is, it just simply won't regard that as acceptable. And it will be looking for some form of independent regulator with real powers to say yay or nay. not necessarily in all cases of course we know that there's a difficulty with state aid measures in the form of primary legislation the UK constitution wouldn't allow a regulator to overrule those Uh, I think that would be accepted but fundamentally the regulator ought to have jurisdiction to say yay or no and and in most cases generate to strike down uh, subsidies that were found to be outside the scope of the regime Um, uh, I mean I think the the um, I mean, the other aspect of this is, of course, Article 10 of the Protocol, the well-known dispute about that. Um, it's, it has always struck me that, the, the I mean, I, I think it's a sort of common ground that Article 10 causes a number of problems. Um, I don't think you'll find very many in the state aid community who think it was a, a, a great article. Um, it has all sorts of um, potential, what I think are now known as reachback effects into Great Britain, And its ambit is going to be somewhat uh, uncertain. You also don't want it running in parallel with the domestic UK regime, because that that way lies madness. You will have a lot of measures that will fall under both regimes. And as Lady Bracknell might have said, to have one subsidy control regime is a necessity to have two looks like carelessness. Um, I think you need. So uh, what seems to me to be the sensible way of dealing with Article 10 is for the UK to come up with its own proposals and then go to the EU and say well Article 10 was there, as a, as a to use the traditional term a backstop, it was there to deal with a situation where there was no FDA and where there was no UK subsidy control mechanism whatsoever. There is going to be an FTA. here is the UK subsidy regime, you do not need Article 10 or at least you can very very seriously cut it back um, in ways that need a bit of thought to measures that are genuinely completely um, inherent to Northern Ireland um, but, but essentially you can rely on the UK uh, dealing with Northern Ireland issues through its own uh, mechanism. That seems to me to be the sensible way of dealing with Article 10 rather than simply decide you're not going to comply with it because having thought about it you don't like what you agreed to which is the internal market bill approach.
0: And I think it's just worth coming in on that. that actually on the internal market bill itself on the white paper that was sort of the question around enforcement was just one of the immediate ones that was also tossed up um, in terms of trying to sort of gauge even business sentiment. I mean, there was there was a lot of widespread support for the um, the aims as conveyed of the internal market bill uh, in terms of trying to, as I would call it, a tidying up exercise post single market um, to try and give some continuity or, or legal backing to continuity of trade across the UK. But in terms of understanding who is responsible for enforcement, um, uh, particularly since this Separately Common frameworks program is continuing apace, and in terms of the subsidy control, that was the immediate question was, who was going to enforce these measures? And I think that from a commercial perspective, while there is lots of appetite for um, having a more UK-tailored approach to subsidy constraints, speed, enforcement, scope, I think that you know what people don't want to see is the minute you start talking about duplicating multiple regimes um the benefit to it starts to you know it's it's a case of diminishing returns at the end of
1: that's great thank you both and Ali, if i can come back to you you mentioned earlier what um sort of some eu business groups were were saying about um about reaching state aid agreement what what are, what's the view of business within the uk it, as what george james have said seems likely that the UK is going to adopt its own regime, um, but maybe with a bit more freedom. How, how does business feel about that?
0: I think that if you're going to, um, if it's so difficult to talk about it in without knowing. There's so many variables that matter. So on the one hand, in terms of the communicating the argument that we want more freedom to be able to intervene, I do think that you're going to find that as an increasingly more popular argument in in light of the pandemic, although, you know, it depends, are you trying to hold that up to someone else's regime, or is this the EU's sort of um, uh, counterparty in this effect, because obviously um, there have been, the EU's been extremely flexible um, to the point of, I'm not going to say that they render state aid rules obsolete at all, but they've been extremely flexible with um, amendments to their temporary framework for for state aid. Having said that, you know, if if people feel that that, you know, yes, on the one hand, they want more freedom to be able to intervene. And I think that state aid is one of those behemoths that um, at its fundamental core, when explained, there is support for having those kind of predictable rules. And I think that was something that came across um, in in, uh, earlier is that's important to have is that, you know, while there is a desire to sort of simplify and I wouldn't say speed up, but sort of simplify the rules, no one wants to sort of cast them off wholesale because there is that desire to have predictability on the other side of the transition period. You know, the the, the more that you are sort of tinkering with the rules, um, the cumulative effect of that can sometimes offset the sort of, you know, how are we gauging whether the regime is more successful in a sense? Is it that speedier decisions are taken? Um, Is it that, you know, more... what are we trying to do? I mean, what are we trying to do here to a certain extent? Because the issue in the past, I think that you could probably lay at the feet of state aid um, in different forms. Is sometimes the inflexibility of it. Uh, is sometimes, for example, the extent, the scope of it. So we've mentioned sort of um, the intersection with uh, uh, tax breaks, so to speak, tax arrangements. You know, on the one hand, um, I think you are seeing because of the pandemic as an argument. I think businesses are receptive. Desire to have government taking a stronger hand in supporting industry, particularly at the moment. Although we have to be clear that if you were to look at some of the government's support regimes, you know the the coronavirus, the furlough scheme, those are not state um, aid. So I think the, the real regimes are the um, the the access to finance ones, the sort of mm. loan schemes. Uh, having said that, it was. Um, the, you know, the more that you can reference something as being the reason that you couldn't, you know, banks were using the argument about the undertaking and difficulty rule, um, even though it was put there for the right reason. You know, the, the, the EU had put that retrospective date in there to identify what company was actually genuinely affected by COVID as opposed to have been in struggling and difficulty before then. So it was the reasoning was right. But, you know, it's the inflexibility. But afterwards and the process by which it took to get it changed Although I would say from our experience, you know, I'm not sure it wasn't clear the government were at least publicly making this a big thing to change with the EU very often um, looking at their public statements on this specific issue over the last couple of months. It was, you know, we are bound by the state aid rules. We can't change them. Well, we did end up changing them. We changed the temporary framework. And that's because the EU has been fairly responsive. So, you know, I think businesses are receptive to the idea of government taking a stronger hand in supporting industry right now, um, but they also inevitably care a lot about the fairness and level playing fields. Um, I think people don't realize that not just in in, in Europe, but, you know, in terms of while we have a majority of IOD members who support the argument that government should be able to, particularly for those larger um, sort of economy-critical big businesses when they get into difficulty, uh, there has been a lot of arguments around, you know, fairness and what, you know, who is getting what, because if you compare some of the uh, support schemes for COVID in this country to other European ones, even, for example, Ireland, Ireland's temporary wage subsidy scheme picks up everyone, Um, not necessarily the UK scheme is seeking not to do that, but the way in which business is structured, if you're a limited company, there have been lots of exceptions to eligibility, Um, and so... If you look at other countries, they've been able to pick up a much bigger share of their workforce. And so I think in this country, actually, the last few months, you've seen businesses start to care a lot more about the level playing field. So in terms of wider support, they want more freedom to be able to support industry as needed. But I think the rules for that and having a predictable framework is really important, even if it's not the exact framework at the moment, because that predictability um, dimension is really important. And particularly the last thing I would say on that is as a price of a deal, You know, we we've asked members earlier in the year about um, when when alignment was still in play, uh, you know, did we wanted to make sure that businesses who were, you know, we have a two thirds to one majority in favor of alignment versus prioritizing being able to diverge from the EU. Um, And we wanted to test whether the people who wanted to be able to diverge as their top priority. uh, Sorry, the people who wanted to align. Did they still want to do that, even if it meant um, aligning to EU rules in um, competition and sort of health and safety and employment? And only one in 10 wanted to disalign off the back of that. So we know that, you know, in terms of the people who were who wanting to align, that there is that preference for, they're not bothered about um, subsidy rules if it risks a deal with the EU. But I think when you start to go into the detailed examples, everyone has a, a memory of a state aid rule that went against the, uh, not so much went against the UK, but something was chalked up to state aid rules, I should say. Very often, I think things are blamed on state aid rules, sometimes appropriately, sometimes as the reason for not actually asking the EU to, in the past to clear something. So we do have governments, you know, whether they are Conservative or Labour in the past, who I think have been sometimes quick to not take action, or intervene, um, but not wanting to actually go there and try and get the EU to clear it in the first place.
1: Great. Thank you very much, Ali. That, that's a really good summary. Now, I still have some more questions I want to ask, but I noticed that a lot of our audience do too. So perhaps I'll move on to audience questions now and we'll cover some of my other questions through that. I'm going to start with a question from uh, Alexander Rose, um, who says, should the UK regime have a regulator? If so, what power should they have? And I'm just going to tie it in with another question from Jill, who says, can the UK give the EU sufficient guarantees on independent enforcement, given the constitutional position of the CMA, ministerial appointments, potentially abolished by primary legislation, as you mentioned, George? Um, James, perhaps I'll come to you first on that one.
3: Well, I, I mean, I think the UK should have an independent regulator. Uh, sorry, the UK should have an independent regulator, <clears throat> um, and I'm not particularly um, driven by the EU's requirements in that regard. But like, I think that we need it from a union point of view primarily. Uh, you know, the, the, these these issues, state aid and subsidy control, has the potential to be very, very. Um, dis, uh, you know, what's the word? You know, can create a very strong pulling apart effect disuniting. between uh, dis- uh between the the nations of the union, and and I think uh, that's the most important reason to have a an independent regulator that all nations of the United Kingdom can look to as making decisions which are impartial, which are based on evidence and on the effects uh, of particular measures, and you know we don't have. Um, you know, devolved administrations seeking to disunite the the kingdom, so to say, by uh, proposing measures which are, um, you know, going to give dairy farmers in the borders areas, you know, a, a larger milk subsidy than the dairy farmers in Northumbria, <laughs> um, and sort of generating that 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 tension. So I think. The best way to diffuse that is not through the Treasury and Whitehall, but through an independent regulator. So that's the primary reason to have an independent regulator. Um, the EU would the EU accept the CMA? I mean, frankly, um, you know, the, the, the CMA is a much, much more independent uh, and regulator than the Commission is. <laughs> Which, if anyone's ever done a state aid case. Um, you know it's wildly political uh, as to whether or not proceedings are opened, the type of standard of evidence that you have placed on you to prove that you you meet the, the criteria. Um, I mean it's an extraordinarily political process so so i I, I think um, I can't imagine the, the commission would have the hoots par to, to seriously suggest that the CMA is less independent than than they are that would be uh, that would be a jaw drop moment I think.
2: I mean, I think I think it. I, I don't even think we need to speculate. I mean, the Commission did accept, it when when thinking about the um, the, the old Bay Northern uh, uh, backstop proposals, which um, which, which involved a, an, an independent UK state aid regulator administering effectively the EU state aid regime as a domestic regime. Yeah. Um, and the text of that referred throughout to there being an independent regulator, and it was, I think, understood by everybody that that meant the CNA. I mean, the commission, of course, is very used. DG COMP is very used to dealing with the CMA as a competition authority. So I don't, I don't think that was ever going to be an issue. And I, I think, sort of the theoretical points about CMA, CMA being appointed by ministers and potentially abolished by primary legislation are of any great concern. I mean, in our system, it's very difficult to see that you're not going to have a, a, a CMA appointed by ministers in at least you know which UK governments appoint. It's a different question but, minister, but members of the CMA are always going to be appointed by one of the UK governments in the plural um, so that is it's, it's hardly how you get around that and of course in UK system as the commission is well aware anything can be changed by primary legislation so if you're going to create that as a problem you, you're, you're, you're generating a problem that as you know to be insoluble so they won't generate it as a problem I, I mean I entirely agree with James and I think really that takes us to other parts of the internal market bill as well. There's a real issue about the way in which um, these issues um, are impinging on the powers of the devolved government. Um, the, 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 I think it's now Clause 50 of the Internal Market Bill um, makes uh, subsidy control a reserved matter, which is um, a matter that the, the devolved governments are all protesting about because they see the potential for uh, interference in, uh, uh, you know, right across the range of activities that. Are that, that they currently uh, deal with and it does seem to me in fact I've argued for a few years I remember putting this idea to the further the Brexit select committee as it then was and being asked about it um, unsurprisingly by Joanna Cherry um, It would seem to me that if the CMA or is to have a state aid role or any different state aid regulator it seems to me that the case for having that regulator appointed by all four UK governments and not just the Westminster government is actually unanswerable. Um, It would also, of course, make that entity more independent because it would have four masters and not just one.
0: I think it's also worth remembering that, that, um, you know, only a few months ago, despite the specifically in this in this subset of the negotiations, the arguments are being made with some trepidation, ironically, um, about whether actually this is a this is a conservative government that wants to be able to intervene more, rather than this is just about sort of an argument over sort of the sovereignty of the rules. Um, but you know, a few months ago, that the CMA is itself sees post Brexit. You know, I think it was the the chief exec who actually said that they saw an upside in taking back control of the decisions and wanting a more active role. In scrutinising, they'll have they'll have plenty of other work cut out for them with, with with Brexit as a consequence, which I think leads to the question: Is it will it be a subsidiary of the CMA? If it is, if it is an independent regulator and it is the CMA, you know, under what aegis is it? Um, but they, you know, the, the CMA wants the powers to take on the powers to impose fines on. Um, I wouldn't say that they have necessarily U.S. tech giants in their sights, but I think they want to be as active, if not more, of a um, you know tough cookie, so to speak, than than the Commission was on some of these areas. So. Um, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't forget that actually that that the the origins of this, from a UK standpoint, are actually um, despite the questions that the government's current approach to this and the negotiations are leading about what is its intent here. You know, the UK still is is <laughs> may see out of Brexit actually in a, um, a benefit to actually going harder, tougher, and on you know being actually less political than the Commission, but certainly no less um, uh, robust in its enforcement work.
1: Right. So another question here uh, from Guitars George says, what work has the UK actually done to develop a robust system? Does anyone actually know? If I can tie this into um, another question. So if if we are to reach a deal with the EU, um, which presumably will be contingent on the UK having its own regime, what prospect is there of that regime being ready for January when we leave the transition periods? Um, and, and if that's going to be a problem, then what, what is the interim arrangement going to be? Uh, who wants to take that? George, should I start with you?
2: Sorry, I so should start. I mean, we were told um, in March by Michael Gove, giving evidence to the um, further relationship to that committee, that there would be a robust subsidy regime the EU would find acceptable. In you know, re- ready by now, and we were told in June by Bayes in a letter to the House of Lords Select Committee that they were, quotes, working apace to develop a, a regime, quotes, in tandem with the EU negotiations. Um, so far, no sign of it, um, and I, I don't think I'm aware of anyone who's been approached for discussions or consultation about that. Indeed, that was one of the reasons why I supported the letter that James and uh, Alex. Uh, wrote to the Prime Minister uh, the other week, um, mm. because it seemed to me that the, 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 it was entirely unclear to us where the proposals had got to, and it also struck us they might well need some help from outside, because there's a lot of very difficult issues to be thought through, um, and the experience of practitioners in, in, in operating these regimes is, is likely to be quite important in getting the regime designed properly. Um, I mean, there, as far as we know, there isn't a regime sitting ready to be produced, um, I have to say, if there was a regime sitting someone some in a door ready to produce ready to be produced, it would almost certainly have problems in it because as far as I'm aware, as I said, nobody from outside has seen it. Um, and um it's likely to raise some problems. Um that does, as you say, raise the question as to what happens in the interim. Let's assume that there is a commitment to a state aid, uh, an anti-subsidy regime of some form in, in the free trade agreement. Um It's obviously not going to be acceptable to the EU for there to be a period of months while there is no such regime in effect while we get on with designing ours, uh, which is the current phase position as of its 9th September um, uh, pronouncement. Um, Something's got to be done in the interim. I mean, it doesn't seem to me that there is much alternative to the one put forward in the IFG paper, which is to pick up the, the the Theresa May government statutory instrument on state aid, which was designed to keep the state aid uh, regime operational in a no-deal situation and run with that for a bit. The 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 statutory instrument has is has been drafted, it's sitting there. It had some issues with it, but we can have a look again at those and we can sort them out. Um, but it 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 obviously the state aid regime is a known quantity, you're not having to try and reinvent the wheel and we can just get on with that for as long as it takes to devise a better mousetrap. I I would say I'm just not sure that there is an alternative solution, actually.
1: Uh, I mean, it's worth mentioning also
0: that that that, that that statement, you know, in terms of following um, Alex Sharma as the business secretary on that 9th of September, sort of outlined that the government follows sort of WTO rules that... um, Yes, you can make the argument that maybe in certain decisions it can be uh, understand to apply to services. But generally speaking, the, the WTO rules only largely apply to goods, I would say. So, you know, are we going to have a gap where basically just services aren't covered if we're following if we're following that? There are,
3: well, I think <clears throat> I think the reason my principal reason for wanting to not have a gap is because I don't think it's sensible for everyone to change change horses twice. Now if we're moving from a state aid race, the EU state aid rules, which Byzantine as they are, are understood by those who play the sister play in the system, play the systems, bit unfortunate play in the system. Um, uh, and you don't we we are going to move, I hope, to a much better and more efficient and less bureaucratic system. And you'd want to be able to transition between the two, rather than sort of have a sort of a gap in the middle um, where no one really quite knows what's going on. So that that's my main reason for. Um, you know, well, writing the letter that Alex and I wrote to the Prime Minister was to try try and say, well, look, we have got enough time to to introduce everything. And Frost said yesterday that there would be consultation if necessary on the on the new regime, and that is a little bit worrying, frankly, because uh, sort of to a point George made, you know, Article 10 of the Northern Ireland Protocol, you know, was such a is such a disaster, right? From a from a state aid UK policy perspective, um. You know it's a really vivid example of how badly things can go wrong if you don't get uh if you don't make law and policy properly, right? <laughs> um, and you know, they've created this dreadful problem for themselves with the protocol, which, which, we, un- under any circumstances, the state aid provisions of the protocol, to my mind, just have to go, they're completely unsustainable. So, that's what, and that's what the uh, in IM bill is about. Trying, they've recognised that reality, and they're trying to do it. It's not perhaps the the best way of achieving the objective, but the objective is true. You have got to get rid of the of Article Ten, which is ridiculous. Um, but it's a, it should be a sobering lesson, I think, in 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 how difficult this policy area is, and we really need, I think, to get to get the get the system moving, um, so that we can all see what's proposed and commentate and comment on it, and and you know, get our shoulders to the wheel so that system comes in as soon as possible.
1: Great. I have an anonymous question here, which builds on that question about the NI protocol. So per the protocol and ramifications of state A's, does the panel think Northern Ireland will come out of this with an advantage or a disadvantage in comparison with GB?
3: Well, I'll take that. I mean, the, Northern Ireland, the state aid provisions of the Northern Ireland Protocol must go. <laughs> they're un, they're unworkable and they must go. So if you're going to have a trade agreement with a state aid chapter then that is what should replace it. And so you have a UK wide system um, with an in, CMA as an independent regulator appointed by all four nations and that's the answer that right? there isn't a world in my view where the state the Northern Ireland Protocol can can stagger on. Uh, the state aid provisions of it with a separate GB system. I mean that that that's. I mean, Georgia said you end up with two systems. You've got what's the interlinkage between the two becomes very vexed uh, between you know, on all sorts of levels. So so I you know I very much hope the government is is telling the UK the, the, the EU whatever it is we agree Article Ten goes.
0: It's an interesting question just briefly raised there because about how the EU sees the the protocol, the implementation of the protocol, because there's been so much focus, even though this is probably the most vexing part of it, to sort out, there's been so much focus on the internal movements within the UK and is the government abiding by what it signed up to in the protocol and the EU's approach from the get-go was to say, I think if the government had come out and even countenance the possibility that there was going to be any kind of um, alignment with rules in any space in its um, uh, provisional negotiating text when it sort of sent that out. Um, I think that if they'd left that possibility open, then um, there you could have sort of reasoned that actually, well, the FTA is just naturally going to pick up a lot of the um, uh, uncertainties, holes, or I would say inconsistencies in some areas of the protocol. Um, because they didn't make that commitment In some areas it made it a lot easier for the EU to say, well, you're not aligning, we're going to have certain controls and therefore we need to see your implementation of the protocol in these areas around sort of customs and controls and checks and everything now because we really can't argue or say or rely on this sort of the argument that the FTA, now that we know you're not doing any alignment, is going to pick up some of this. I think the approach is different because all that focus was sort of saying, it doesn't matter what you do in the FTA now, this protocol is going to stand, the um, exit and summary declarations is going to stand in either direction, no matter what, regardless of what happens with the deal. State aid was a very different beast in that sort. So I'm really intrigued by sort of what James is talking about there. Does, you know, do both sides recognize that as opposed to where there is a tension about do certain obligations around goods movements of the protocol have to be held up regardless of whether there is an FTA, do both sides actually is there a consensus that actually that protocol, that part of the protocol, and state aid cannot stand on its own and has to be dealt with through the FTA?
3: I don't think there is a
2: consensus on that at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think I don't think there is a consensus. But I, I mean, I also think that the, you know, the, 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 the point that, the, that there are serious difficulties and uncertainties with Article Ten, and that it it, it certainly read Read literally, which is what, as a lawyer, one is supposed to, at least to start off by doing. It's capable of catching all sorts of measures where the effect on Northern Ireland is either tangential or only a small part of what the measure is about. Um, I mean that that is a. I think. If, I mean, I think the EU must recognise that there are going to be difficulties in trying to operate that regime, particularly in a situation where. You know, there wasn't an FTA and one's trying to operate it in a somewhat hostile environment. And part of the difficulty as well from the EU side is that this isn't a difficulty that can be managed by the Commission taking a, quote, pragmatic or sensible approach to what's caught by Article 10, because Article 10 confers rights on Mm. third parties. Yes, exactly. Ultimately, its scope is to, to be determined by the European Court of Justice. Um, and also by UK national courts. If if the government did something that, that contravenes Article 10, the commission might decide not to do anything about it, but somebody might knock on James on my door and say, James or George, take this case, I want to complain about this. It looks as if it's a breach of Article 10, and we trot off to the national court, and we say this looks like a breach of Article 10, and the national court says, oh yes, it does. Um, and the commission is nowhere near that, but the, if, but the National Court in those circumstances has no alternative but to strike the measure down or possibly refer it to the European Court of Justice. And this isn't a matter whether, the, the, as in various other areas of the protocol, a lot of the problems will be sorted out by the Joint Committee and or the Commission taking a sort of reasonable view and um, not pushing things. Not this, um, mm. because it's, it's the, the thing has been set up and has a life of its own.
1: It needs to be got rid of. I think uh, you've made that argument uh, yeah, just, just, just wait
0: until it intersects with the, uh, particularly with energy and electricity on and the SEM uh, the and Northern Ireland's particular interconnections in the, with different actors in that space. Because energy is one of the areas that, you know, that state aid is potentially most, um, shall we call it, flare up bull in. Um, yeah. And it's a big contentious issue and Northern Ireland's a particularly unique arrangement because of its arrangements with GB in this space. So I'm I'm waiting to see how energy sort of fa- factors in with um, uh, where the arrangements get to on state aid because I think that's one area that you could see if it's not worked out properly stuff popping up almost immediately.
2: Yeah, well, anyone who was involved in the um, the state aid litigation involving the electricity capacity mechanism, as as I was, and I think James may have been, I can't remember, mm-hmm. um, that I think almost everybody was in one way or another will know quite. What a mess the state aid can rules rules can make um, yeah. when 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 they go wrong.
1: <laughs> okay, I just want to get through a couple more questions as uh, at the end of time. What, one is more a question of facts, um, but it's been quite highly voted on the live Q and A. So for those of us less familiar with the details, what has the EU agreed with Switzerland in terms of state aid? Does one of you just want to take that quite quickly? Um, I'm
0: not sure. I'd say agreed, but uh, George and I have had the okay. discussion just looking about uh, what what unilateral measures it rests on. But I'll let George think. that.
2: Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that the Swiss are, uh, are setting up their own. Uh, have got to set up their own uh, regime, but it will it will it will effectively be EU uh, state aid uh, rules. That's my understanding of it, anyway.
1: Okay, brilliant. And then one. Question and we maybe have to get a couple more in. Um, but a, a question a few questions asking about what David Frost said yesterday and the principles approach and whether it would be enough for the UK just to offer a principles approach or whether there would need to be um some more meat in the in the agreed text. Um, James, can I ask you? To well, speak? I
3: mean, I, mean, I, I, I very much. Hope that we, well, we can offer much more than a principles approach, you know. And so, you know, I hope I hope that we do offer more than a principles approach. Frankly, <laughs> um, I don't know everyone's gone. My screen's just changed. Um, so, so whether it's enough or not, I, I mean, my own view is that the e, that the free trade agreement is so strongly in the EU's favour that ultimately. You know, if, as long as we say something um, that's that's more than F than WTO, then then the EU is going to accept it um, ultimately. I mean, because because I, I think the free trade agreement is so so strongly in their interests that that's what they're going to do, and and that's what's been shown about the internal market bill, um, uh, sort of. Fiasco, I suppose, is that they've stayed at the table, and that 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 makes sense. The agreement's very strongly in their interests. So, so I I think um, if that's all the UK does serve up, then the EU will ultimately swallow it. But I, I don't um, think that's necessary. I think we can offer up something that's that that is uh, more concrete, uh, and that will help both us and and them.
0: I guess it rests. I don't know if you have any view on that, James, and certainly George, on to what extent when um, we talk about enforcement and are they going to ask for the de- expect the details of who is if there is to be an independent reg- regulator confirming that. But I don't know, you know, how you whether the EU would be minded enough to accept principles without having clear understanding of how and what or who enforces the principles.
2: I mean, I'm a bit more sceptical than James is about whether the EU would accept a set of principles without a commitment to an independent regulator and, um, you know, ultimately enforcement by the courts and third, part, you know, third-party rights. As I said, I, it does seem, uh, the point I made earlier about the, the EU does think in legal terms and will accept back to see those things as part of a functioning uh, uh, re- regime. Um, and I suspect, I mean, my 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 judgment is that, that that those are critical elements from the EU's point of view. It won't accept what it would regard as fluffy statements of principle. I, but I also, though, entirely agree with James. And perhaps, I mean, this is really the main point is that we should, that, that those are elements we should have in our regime anyway, mm-hmm. uh, particularly with an eye on the sort of devolution aspects, that one of the principal domestic reasons for introducing such a regime is to prevent um, the sort of the di- di- di distortions with which the rest of the internal market bill is concerned. Um, and if that regime is to is to command confidence across the United Kingdom and in all four nations of the United Kingdom, it's got to have a degree of independence and and teeth and sort of fluffy principles enforced slightly randomly at, from, by Westminster politicians. Just won't work. Um, they won't that's deliver just- the regime that's needed.
0: Just to amplify that, you know, just if it needs to be said, um, it is not just the EU who wants to have this sort of continuity around third-party rights. I mean, in as much as sort of the average business can understand all of the detail of what the state aid regime means currently and what the government is looking at doing it potentially in the future, if you ask them or you sort of distill um, the white the, the internal market bill sort of in the white paper's aims and you talk to them about it, sort of the, the continuity aspect, one of the first things they ask is, um, you know, what will we be able Will there still be that continuity of third party rights in any way? Um, because people yeah. want to have access to that at the end of the day. So it's not just something I think that, you know, not that in any way that George was suggesting that, but we should just remember it's not just something that the EU wants either.
1: Thank you, everyone. We we could keep talking about this for, for hours, um, but unfortunately, our time is up. So I'd like to thank all of my panellists, um, George, Ali and James, for a really interesting discussion. and Thank you to all of you who were watching along and asking your questions. Um, We managed to get to most of them, although I'm afraid there were a few that we couldn't address. Um, Let me just point you to a couple of other IFG Live events coming over the next few days. Tomorrow we have one on security and Brexit. That's tomorrow morning, that's not one to be missed. And then next Tuesday, I believe, is an event titled Deal or No Deal, which will be looking um, even more broadly as we reach that 15th of October deadline about whether we expect there to be a deal or not. Um, So thank you all very much for watching.
2: Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk. events